Bob Harrington from Stanford University, and I'm really excited to announce going back to the heart of cardiology, the fourth annual conference. It'll be held this year in Anaheim, California, December 8th through 10th. It's a great opportunity to get a couple of days of prevention through structural heart disease intervention type of education, great opportunity for networking, meeting with friends in beautiful, warm Southern California. To register, go to heartofcardio.com. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. We're excited to bring you another episode of our ACHD series, this time diving into the electrophysiology world of ACHD patients. I'd like to start by reintroducing Dr. Stephanie Fuentes Rojas, who's been on the show recently. Stephanie completed her medical school training at UT Medical Branch in Galveston and internal medicine residency at Houston Methodist and has stayed on for her adult cardiovascular medicine fellowship. Welcome back, Stephanie. Thanks, Dan. I'm happy to be here. I have the distinct pleasure of introducing Dr. Frank Fish. Dr. Fish is a pediatric electrophysiologist, the director of the Pediatric Electrophysiology Lab at Morrow Correll Jr. Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt University. He is a board-certified ACHD physician and has served as a Vanderbilt ACHD Fellowship Program Director over the past four years and has a wealth of experience performing EP procedures in adults living with congenital heart disease. Welcome, Dr. Fish. Thank you. Glad to be here. Dr. Fish, as a general cardiology fellow hoping to pursue a career in electrophysiology, I'd love to hear how you became interested in ACHD and electrophysiology. It really kind of happened very naturally. I actually trained in EP before catheter ablation hit the scene. In fact, I distinctly remember a special session on Sunday afternoon at the American Heart Association by Sonny Jackman discussing his first 10 ablation patients. And since I joined the faculty at Vanderbilt, catheter ablation followed soon thereafter. And so in many ways, self-taught. And it became very clear that a group of patients that had a lot of arrhythmias that were going to require management were the adult congenital patients. So I started to go to the adult congenital clinic, which was started by the late Thomas Graham and Gottlieb Priesinger, who were kind of the founders of the cardiology and pediatric cardiology program at Vanderbilt jointly had a congenital clinic. So I started to tag along and saw the patients and dealt with their arrhythmia needs. Well, we're excited to discuss key concepts and management on the, and like the physiology issues that we encounter when caring for adults with congenital heart disease. Arrhythmias in adults with congenital heart disease can be intrinsic due to a defect itself or as a consequence of the interventions that they have undergone to palliate and or repair these defects. The hearts of adults with congenital heart disease have often gone through years of volume and pressure overload, and they may have suture lines, patches, or baffles, all of which are perfect substrates for arrhythmias and make interventions, whether they be catheter ablation or device implant, complex. That's absolutely correct, Stephanie. Arrhythmias in ACHD patients can span from really focal surgical site scars, from, say, LV apical vents or ventriculotomy scars, to very complex circuits with multiple you know, prior valve replacements, conduits, and surgical scars in a lot of our patients. So it really takes a lot of creativity and persistence to ablate them. Isn't that right, Dr. Fish? Yes, that's right. It's a challenging group of patients yeah, with a lot of diversity in terms of their tachycardia mechanisms and the substrates. I think one additional factor, as we now have the ability to assess myocardial health, if you will, by voltage being the proxy of health, 
I think the contribution, not of just discrete surgical scars, but acquired scar fibrosis and the effects they have on conduction velocities, as I think we are increasingly recognizing how that also impacts the development of these arrhythmias in these patients. And I think the other thing that makes them challenging is that any defect you talk about, no matter what you call it, it should generate a list of questions as to the specifics of the defect, as well as the specifics of their surgical history, which sometimes is available, sometimes isn't, and sometimes has to be kind of deduced during the course of the study. And you have to have a lot of ability to change your strategy, change your approach on the spot as you encounter unexpected problems, whether they be vascular access issues or difficulty getting into a chamber, et cetera. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, let's dive in a few cases that highlight the presentation and management of arrhythmias in adults with congenital heart disease. First, we have a 31-year-old woman who was born with double outlet right ventricle with malopost great arteries, hypoplastic left ventricle, and mitral valve atresia. This yielded a single ventricle physiology, so she underwent lateral tunnel fontan at age two. She presented with uh, sudden onset palpitations while she was laying in bed. This has never happened to her before, and evidently she was trying to walk to the bathroom, but was significantly short of breath, diaphoretic and lightheaded. So she called EMS, who cardioverted her on arrival. After knowing a blood pressure of 75 over 40 with a heart rate of 224, she was then taken to the emergency room where her symptoms recurred, and the EKG showed a narrow complex tachycardia with a ventricular rate of the 220s. Wait, hold it right there, Stephanie. I'm having awesome flashbacks from the incredible teaching we received from Dr. Yuli Kim from just a few weeks ago. So just to make sure that I am picturing this anatomy right, your patient has single ventricle physiology anatomy, has been pileated with a lateral tunnel fontan, meaning the systemic venous return. The blood is going directly to the pulmonary arteries via passive flow, completely bypassing the right ventricle, which is now functioning as your systemic ventricle. It sure seems like this arrhythmia must be impacting your cardiac output from her symptoms and everything, given that she's symptomatic and hypotensive. That's exactly right, Amit. We're going to have to do something very quickly because she's already starting to decompensate with hypotension and, and her ventricular rate over 200. So as we activate the rapid response team, get pads on, quickly move to obtain IV access and get her stabilized. While we're doing that, would you mind, Dr. Fish, describing what you're seeing on the EKG a little bit further? Sure. As was discussed, we have initially rapid conduction and adenosine reveals this to be one-to-one -one conduction during a uh, atrial arrhythmia at a rate of about 220. I think the fact that she's young, the fact that she has a defect and a surgical history that doesn't necessarily impair AV nodal conduction makes her prone to one-to-one -to -one conduction because of this rate. So it's not uncommon to mistake atrial flutter as either a one-to-one -one SVT that doesn't respond to adenosine or actually after the initial effect of adenosine, it looks like the conduction starts to slow and could also easily be mistaken if she's conducting two-to-one as a simply sinus tachycardia. In fact, if we see an adult congenital patient come in with any kind of history of palpitations who has a sinus tachycardia, it's important not to simply pass them off as somebody who's anxious and has a little bit of a secondary sinus tach because they could very well be in an atrial tachycardia. And one simple trick if you encounter that situation is to, while the patient's on the monitor, simply have them stand up and you're very likely to see a change in the conduction pattern that would tell you that uh, the patient actually is in a tachycardia other than just sinus tachycardia. 
Wow, Dr. Fish, that is a great pearl regarding what may have been initially thought as sinus tachycardia in a patient with adult congenital heart disease and potentially being in atrial arrhythmia and a quick maneuver to help determine whether or not it's uh, arrhythmia-driven tachycardia or just sinus tachycardia from potentially another cause that also needs to be addressed. So, you know, Stephanie, now with that all in mind, how did you end up managing her arrhythmia acutely? She received adenosine, which confirmed the diagnosis of intraatrial tachycardia with one-to-one conduction. And she subsequently was cardioverted once more. Dr. Finch, could you go over the pharmacologic options for acute decompensated IRT rhythm management? Sure. I mean, it's uh, much the same as any other patient that comes in with rapidly conducted atrial arrhythmias, except that one has to realize that simply slowing the ventricular rate may not relieve their risk. Again, they're often younger patients. They can be harder to block down with uh, AV nodal blocking agents. They also, as was already mentioned, this woman with a single ventricle physiology is completely dependent on passive transpulmonary blood flow. So any perturbation in the normal AV synchrony may raise left atrial pressure and impede forward flow and compromise cardiac output. Add to that a vasodilating drug used as an AV nodal blocking agent can spell trouble pretty quickly. So you have to do all, if you're going to resort to AV nodal blockade, you have to do so with some trepidation and really look at that just as a temporizing measure in a patient that's unstable. As far as conversion, probably the best medical conversion could be achieved with ibutilide. But of course, if you don't know this patient, you don't know what their sinus node functions like, you don't know how bradycardic they may be following conversion, and that could put them at risk for torsade. So you have to be very mindful of that in these patients if you choose to use ibutilide. In a patient like this who's already been cardioverted once and recurred and now requiring a second cardioversion, some type of uh, medical stabilization would probably be best achieved with either IV percanamide or IV amiodarone. The part of the decision-making there, I think, would be whether or not your facility has the expertise and the availability to get this patient into the lab in the short term. If so, then you might want to avoid amiodarone simply because you don't want to be able to get your drug off quickly if you decide to take a patient to the EP laboratory at this hospitalization. Thanks for going over that, Dr. Fish. I just want to rewind for a brief minute. Did you say that you should, you know, initially when you're evaluating the arrhythmia, have the patient stand up? Oh, that was not this patient. This patient obviously came in with a non-sinus rhythm. I was merely making a point that as the patient, right before this patient developed complete block, there were a couple of beats that looked like it was probably two to one. That's easy when the patient was one to one and then goes two to one. But if this patient had come in with a heart rate of 110, complaining of palpitations, it might've been very easy to just assume that this was a 30-something-year-old lady with congenital heart disease. He had had some funny symptoms and now is just anxious and having sinus tachycardia. And so my point was, you always have to have a high index of suspicion that a patient with congenital heart disease with a little bit of sinus tachycardia may be in an atrial arrhythmia that isn't obvious from the EKG. They usually don't have or often don't have typical flutter waves like you would expect to see in a patient with a typical CTI-dependent atrial flutter. And so they can be difficult to recognize. And standing up just makes it an easy way to change the AV nodal conduction. If the patient's rate is a little faster, 140, 150, and it's thought to be sinus tachycardia, that would be highly suspicious. Standing them up would not necessarily change the conduction ratio in that situation, but you would expect a patient that they got up, they moved around, you would expect their heart rate to vary. So if they have an invariant heart rate, 140 or 150, you still have to be suspicious that this is an atrial tachycardia other than sinus. The other point I wanted to make that we see from time to time, we see it often enough that I've actually listened to a phone conversation with one of my cast colleagues who, not to be critical of cast people, but they 
sometimes are not always thinking about arrhythmias, but received a call from an outside cardiologist who had given a patient diltiazem. A patient like this came in with rapid, wide, a rapid narrow complex tachycardia, gave diltiazem and said, okay, she's in sinus now, so we're going to discharge her. And he said, well, wait a minute, what was the rate before? And it was, like I say, it was 220. What's the rate now? It's 110. And he said, I think this patient may be in two to one tachycardia now, and you did not convert her. So a high index of suspicion is key to evaluating all of these patients, in particular the Fontan patients who tend to have a slower atrial tachycardia in general. In fact, I would say it's the exception rather than the rule in a Fontan patient to have an atrial rate above 200, as this lady did during their tachycardia. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Actually, standing the patient up to modify conduction uh, wasn't in my toolkit. It will be now. Thank you. Thanks for reemphasizing that point. And Dr. Fish, really appreciate that the atrial anatomy is so different in patients with congenital heart disease that we have to be aware that their atrial flutter rates may be different and their atrial reentry tachycardias may be different than what we're regularly used to in patients with quote-unquote normal anatomy. And Stephanie, I'm glad to hear that she was acutely stabilized and to learn of the different pharmacological and electrical options for these scenarios. Fontan circulations are so sensitive to perturbations. Dan Clark, how does intraatrial reentry tachycardia interact with her Fontan circuit? Yeah, that's really a great question. Just to go over some key points that Dr. Fish made, you know, the loss of AV synchrony can really perturb the circuit for Fontan since they're relying on passive pulmonary blood flow. And then all of a sudden you lose atrial kick and, and really have a hard time in what's often a, a stiff chamber from prior surgical scars to get blood back into the systemic chamber, in this case, the systemic RV. And as you know, tachycardia is going to reduce our diastolic filling time, and that's going to kind of further limit our filling. But I also just want to step back and say that whenever we see IRT, we want to stop and think about what's causing it. What is the underlying pathophysiology that's leading to this? Is there a systemic illness? Is this a sign of worsening pump dysfunction or potentially obstruction in the Fontan circuit? Have we imaged cross-sectionally the circuit recently to know that there's not even a small gradient across the Fontan of a few millimeters can be very significant for our patients? So I think seeing a new arrhythmia like this and and a patient with Fontan circulation should really prompt us to stop and step back and look for causes that potentially led to this. Yeah, I think that's right, Dan. It's always important to look for underlying causes, but also look for underlying consequences as well. And many times these patients who have been previously well compensated can decompensate very quickly due to their atrial arrhythmias. Or conversely, sometimes they've been in these arrhythmias for days, if not weeks, and not been totally aware of it. And you'll sometimes talk with these patients and they'll say, well, yeah, I've been kind of having a little bit of fast heart rate here and there, but if I sit down and rest, it goes away. And they've probably been in sustained tachycardia for some time and often can have you know, overt ventricular dysfunction that has developed rather quickly as a consequence of the arrhythmia. You know, Fontan patients in particular are especially prone to atrial tachycardias due to fibrosis as well as surgical scars and the pressure load that their atrial chamber is exposed to with the exception of the extracardiac content of Fontan, which is now the normal surgical approach. And so as a consequence, they get hypertrophy, a lot of interstitial fibrosis and scar. They developed an array of intraatrial conduction obstacles. And the better we get at assessing substrate, the more complex we see that these circuits can become. Prior to the extracardiac uh, conduit, there were a couple of different studies that looked at the natural history and the development of atrial arrhythmias following Fontan and showed a fairly linear development of new onset atrial tachycardia at an annual rate of about 3% per year. 
So this lady now is you know, nearly three decades out. And so it's almost inevitable that she would at this point begin to display atrial arrhythmias if she hasn't done so already. Doesn't mean that you don't look for all the things that you talked about, but you may not find anything abnormal to explain why she's now developed atrial arrhythmias other than just time and the uh, burden that her atrium has endured up to this point. That's absolutely right. When should we consider catheter ablation? And what should we take into consideration when prepping for ablation of a Fontan patient? That's a tricky question. And I think every patient has to be viewed individually. I don't think there's a blanket response to that. Number one, as I alluded to, you want to know what's the patient's ventricular function. Uh, number two, it's very important to search for atrial thrombi. These patients are often kept on anticoagulation chronically, but they often don't take it, even if it's prescribed. And aspirin may or may not be sufficiently protective. So it's very important to determine whether they have a atrial thrombi as a consequence of the ongoing arrhythmia. It's my belief, although I don't have substantial data to back this up, but we look for left atrial thrombi in these patients, and it's extremely uncommon to find left atrial thrombi, as you might expect in patients with atrial fibrillation, because I think the atrial rates are slower, and I think there is some ejection within the left atrial appendage so that you don't have the same degree of stasis. On the other hand, you have tremendous stasis in the right atrial chambers in these patients if that's part of their venous return pathway, either what we would call kind of the classic uh, right atrial pulmonary artery fontan, or as this lady has the lateral tunnel fontan. And I think that it's also important in these patients to recognize that the lateral tunnel fontan, uh, you know, we see nice diagrams and drawings and sketches showing this very nice laminar tube that used to be part of the right atrium. Well, many, many times that tube is now dilated and really looked like just a normal right atrium that becomes so dilated over time. So uh, very prone to clot development. And then the ventricular dysfunction, as well as other end organ issues. Often a patient like this comes in with renal insufficiency. They may have even developed some acute hepatic changes. So you really need to look at the entire picture, not just to look for a cause, but also, as I said, look at for the acute consequences of this arrhythmia that this patient may have been in. The other thing that factors into this is, is this the first episode? Although I think that that increasingly becomes less and less important in my mind as we get better at ablating these patients. Another factor is what's the available expertise in the institution uh, that you're at? I think this is an example of an arrhythmia that can be understood, but I think the people that don't delve into these on a regular basis can be very easily find themselves ill-prepared to deal with the complexities and the multiplicities. I've had as many as six different atrial tachycardia circuits in a single patient. In fact, a patient a few years ago that will be included in a book chapter that one of my colleagues and I wrote on this very topic had five or six different circuits that we identified within the lateral tunnel itself. And by doing substrate map and, and limited entrainment, we're able to knock these five different circuits off with less than 20 total but it's very easy to find yourself just treating the atrium with what is a virtual catheter-based bazooka and just burning everything you can find because of so many complex circuits that these patients might harbor. So I think uh, expertise is an issue. I think anesthesia availability, these tend to be long cases, so they should not be attempted in my mind without general anesthesia. But you also need anesthesiologists who are familiar with adult congenital patients and understand the pitfalls of anesthesia management of a patient with single ventricle physiology. And then access issues. Many of these patients have had multiple casts when they were very young before we were quite as slick at getting a nice smooth access. They may have venous obstruction from one or both of their femoral vessels. So access planning. And then finally, just uh, simply lab time. Almost always a patient like this would schedule this case. If not the only case of the day, we would schedule it after a rather short, uncomplicated case. 
anticipating the need for six hours or more to tackle these patients. It's not always that. And sometimes it goes great. And it's easy to become overconfident that, okay, I got this easy. The next one's going to be the same. And then it turns out not to be. This patient, you know, you also have to understand the specifics of what arrhythmias are likely in a given clinical situation. So in this patient, we would go in if we were going to go to lab with some very specific notions of what circuits we need to pursue. The most obvious would be within the lateral tunnel. And so doing a careful assessment of the voltage and scar areas within that chamber. Lateral tunnel is still an atrium, just has been partitioned from uh, the rest of the atrium. Then the other circuit that this patient could very well harbor would be analogous to a simple cable tricuspid flutter, but that area on the tricuspid valve has been partitioned from the lateral tunnel, and it usually sits in a rather difficult position to access from a standard right-to-left transseptal approach. And so understanding where you even need to create your communication with the essentially common left atrium to be able to access that peritricusive valve region can be challenging. So a lot of it has to do with the patient, a lot of it has to do with the specifics, and a lot of it has to do with the understanding of their anatomy. Thanks for going over that, Dr. Fish. That was awesome. I have a follow-up question along those lines. You know, I'm biased and spoiled because I can refer patients to you. But how do you think about kind of upfront catheter ablation versus antiarrhythmic at centers that have expertise to do ablations? Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I think, again, it depends on the situation. I think that if there are no obstacles to going ahead with catheter ablation, number one, and number two, if the patient is amenable, I think it's almost inevitable this patient will have another arrhythmia. So the thought that we just put her on a drug or maybe just wait for the next episode, number one, simply waiting without a drug, I'm not very fond of in this situation because as I alluded to earlier, sometimes these patients may develop their arrhythmia and not be acutely aware of the onset and may come in uh, totally decompensated, having been in an unrecognized arrhythmia for days, weeks, or months. Number two, I think a paper published a number of years ago from a group of Boston Children's Hospital looked at every antiarrhythmic drug available, which basically the same drugs then that we have now with the exception of dofetilide, and their median time from initiation of antiarrhythmic therapy to the next recurrence of atrial arrhythmia in their population was about four months. So um, I think a drug, while you make plans to bring the patient back and perform the ablation, is not unreasonable. And maybe the patient says, well, I'm not ready to do this until it proven that the drug doesn't work. But I think that there's, in my mind, if the availability and expertise is there to proceed with ablation as your first intervention, I think that's not unreasonable if all the uh, pieces are, are in place. This incredible discussion is really having me think about the depth and nuance involved in managing arrhythmias and planning these procedures. And clearly, these patients uh, with the Fontan circuits won't tolerate these arrhythmias very well. And so we should be proactive and aggressive about uh, either diagnostically, maybe potentially doing the EP study or therapeutically doing catheter-based ablation, catheter-based bazooka, as Dr. Fish mentioned earlier. But Dan Clark, you know, the anatomy is different. You know, just walk me through the plumbing here. How do you just physically get those catheters into the atria in the first place? That's right, I'm. It's not going to be a, a straight shot all the time. So in this case, we need to get into the atria. And so going from the venous system, that's going to direct us to the lungs, to the pulmonary arteries, either, you know, from the head and neck and into the bidirectional gland and to the right PA, or if you're going from below up, you know, through the liver and through the fontan, you're going to miss the, the heart unless you're classic AP fontan where you're going through the atria. So in the, the lateral tunnel and the extracardiac fontan, you're going to have to cross over to get into the atria. You know, similar to our non-ACHD patients, retrograde approach from 
the arterial side is is less favored. It's catheters in the arterial system for a longer period of time, more valves that you have to cross, more risk of kind of thromboembolic complications and tortuosity of the catheters. So typically this would be through a venous approach. I think this is a good time to pass it on to, to Dr. Fish. He's done some pretty creative things to get into Fontan atrial pathways and try to ablate the, these rhythms. So Dr. Fish, can you elaborate on some of the different techniques you've used in our Fontan patients? Sure. I think, uh, first of all, one correction, I think this patient, our first area that we would assess would be the lateral tunnel itself. As I mentioned, the lateral tunnels often become very dilated. The atrial tissues hypertrophy. There's a lot of scar within the tunnel. So probably uh, 50% or greater than likelihood that the rhythm will be from the lateral tunnel itself. And you may not have to cross out of the lateral tunnel into the rest of the atrium. But if you do have to do that, you're very often going to be crossing a patch, which may be uh, a Dacron patch that was uh, used to partition the atrium. And so much harder than usual approach to get into the pulmonary venous atrium would be the left atrium and part of the right atrium. So one has to be prepared for those challenges. And that may sometimes require placing a, uh, you know, a very small wire that you can get a coronary balloon across and having to do angioplasty just to create access of sufficient diameter that you can place a deflectible sheath across to help guide you there. As far as the overall vascular access or encounter femoral venous or IBC occlusion, we will usually favor a transhepatic approach, which is a whole topic unto itself, but something that one does with a bit of trepidation uh, because the potential for bleeding after the procedure, because you have to plug off the parenchymal tract that you go through to get into the hepatic vessel hepatic vein. Once you do, however, it's a fairly nice straight shot into the right heart, and it's even not a bad approach to uh, perform a transeptal from, probably much more so than trying to come from above. The newer Fontan patients, uh, the extracardiac conduits, if you're not familiar with that procedure, because these patients are only now beginning to arrive in adult clinic, these patients have a usually end-to-end or more often an end-to-side anastomosis of a tubular, usually cortex tube, which completely bypasses the right atrium. It's attached just above the level the insertion of the hepatic veins to the IBC, and which is usually taken off of the right atrium. And then that goes straight out to the RPA or the RPA SVC junction. And uh, when those first came about, they were bandied as, oh, this is going to be the cure of atrial arrhythmias. And everybody was excited. But I think most of my colleagues in EP thought, you know, they keep saying that every time they do a Fontan and things are never better every time they revise the Fontan approach. There is, however, good data that the frequency of atrial arrhythmias has been reduced, but it certainly has not been eliminated. So we and other centers have uh, reported, actually, was a nice multi-center study that we participated in. It was published by one of my former fellows, Jeremy Moore, showing the experience of going across, punching from this extracardiac conduit into the atrium. And it's a, a bit of a harrowing experience the first time you do it because you can literally see the, as you forcefully press the needle, and it has to be a needle approach because the bailiff system won't go through non-biologic tissue. So you force the needle out of the tube into the space between the tube and the right atrium, and you can actually see the right atrium being pushed away from the, ne- the needle until you finally are able to punch into it. And so there's those are fairly challenging, but we've gotten fairly good at those to you can sometimes either get two sheaths through a single puncture or if necessary, do two punctures, which I think is uh, much preferable to a single puncture because you can put a second reference catheter in the atrium. But they can be, uh, as I said before, they can be challenging and that's just getting access and then dealing with the electrophysiology is challenging as well. So they're not cases to be taken lightly by any means. 
Dr. Fish, that sounds like a very extremely complex ablation procedure starting from the access uh, and moving on to even the EP study. Dan Clark, I know Dr. Fish brought up the issue of thrombus formation in these patients, but I was wondering if you could expand a little bit more about this. How should we approach anticoagulation in ACHD patients with aortic fibrillation? Does the chest to us score or status matter at all? Thanks, Stephanie. That's a great question. You know, I think the Fontan circuit is highly susceptible to thrombosis. So when you think back to medical school teaching to Verkaus triad, each element is really present in patients with Fontan circulation. So first, there's venous stasis from passive pulmonary blood flow and venous hypertension that's necessary to maintain this forward flow. Second, there's activation of blood coagulation. This can be from underlying liver disease, from the prostheses, whether it be the Gore-Tex and an extra cardiac or Dacron patches, and inflammation may be present as well that plays a role in making these patients hypercoagulable. And third, there's venous damage, and that can be simply from the surgical reconstruction of the venous tree or related to some of the chronic venous hypertension. So together, all those factors increase the risk of thrombosis. And I think it's incredibly important for us to not forget that a lot of these patients have residual right-to-left shunts that present opportunities for paradoxical emboli to the systemic circulation. So not only is clotting more common, but the stakes are often much higher in this population. And so for that reason, we keep all of our adult Fontan patients on at least antiplatelets such as aspirin and many on systemic anticoagulation. And so there's special circumstances that will sometimes prompt us to consider systemic anticoagulation, which include, you know, recurrence of atrial arrhythmias, prior clots in the Fontan circuit, thrombi and hypoplastic chambers that are seen with imaging modalities, residual pulmonary valve stumps. So if the pulmonary valve hasn't been completely resected, but there's residual tissue and anitis for clot formation. Pregnancy is an area, I think, of debate and one that we've started to see more clots in some of our patients is now more women with Fontan physiology are getting into adulthood and becoming pregnant. And so I think there's much to be learned about whether or not that prothrombotic state really enhances the risk of thrombosis. And then, of course, all the other things that can be common in non-ACHD patients like DVTPE, mechanical valves, etc. So definitely arrhythmias are a significant contributor and can be something that really prompt us to move away from antiplatelet to more systemic anticoagulation. Yeah, I think that's right, Dan. I think the harder we look, the more aware that our patients uh, are at risk for thrombosis. I don't think the CHATS2 algorithms really have much application here because so much of the predisposing factors are right atrial rather than left atrial origin. It's vexing at the same time to understand the inadequacies of antiplatelet therapy in these patients. So far, we're still trying to accumulate multi-center data to give the green light to using direct oral anticoagulants, although there are some single-center studies that seem to show that it, at the very least, is non-inferior to warfarin. Uh, warfarin is challenging these patients who, by the time they've reached adulthood, all to some degree harbor liver disease, which impacts coagulopathy as well as the management of warfarin. So it's a challenging issue. I think adding to that, you know, it would certainly increase the likelihood of thrombosis. And another factor that I don't think I heard mentioned is patients who have a transvenous pacing systems. Pacing in these patients with atrial arrhythmias is often a part of their therapy and how best to accomplish that in the manner that is most feasible in terms of implantation uh, without increasing the risk of thrombosis. 
even small pulmonary emboli in a patient with Fontan may cause just mild elevation of pulmonary vascular resistance that can be catastrophic in terms of their ability to transmit passive pulmonary blood flow to maintain systemic cardiac output. So pacing leads are another factor that had to be taken into account. Stephanie, thank you for bringing up this incredible case. And we've already covered such a wealth of information. And what I'm taking away is, you know, these patients with Fontan circuits both have a high burden of arrhythmias and are exquisitely vulnerable to the consequences of arrhythmias, whether it's the hemodynamic consequences and also, you know, clot burden. And so our threshold to attend to these are, you know, preemptively is probably a better approach than waiting for it to happen. But, you know, Dan Clark, as the advanced ACHT fellow here, what should I take away from this case? What should we take away from this case? Well, I mean, I think you summarized things very nicely. Both the risk of atrial arrhythmias in these patients is higher due to the anatomy, the prior surgeries, as well as the consequences of that arrhythmia, as Dr. Fish alluded to. And so we really have to explore in depth what underlying pathophysiology is driving the arrhythmia and dig deep to look for clots, for worsening AV valve insufficiency, for worsening ventricular dysfunction and organ damage. And while we're doing that, to get at the etiology that's driving the arrhythmia, that's going to help us understand some of the systemic consequences of the arrhythmia. And so just like in this case, we never want to forget the acute management to stabilize our patients initially. But then when we're thinking about for Fontans in particular, how to keep them out of the rhythm and have more of a durable solution. Remember, a lot of these patients are very young. And so antiarrhythmic drugs, as Dr. Fish alluded to, only get you a few months of prevention from recurrence in a very young patient. That could be a lot of months and years of antiarrhythmic drugs. So for these patients, if you have the expertise, then it's worth considering early catheter ablation in order to try to prevent more arrhythmias. And so... Again, that's incredibly complicated, and I think Dr. Fish did a great job walking through some of the considerations for catheter ablation. But I think for the general fellows, we want to look for the reason that the arrhythmia is popping up and the end-organ consequences of that arrhythmia. I'd like to just add or reemphasize that I think in this population of patients, and I think adult congenital patients overall, we have to be ready to deviate from sort of the standard management algorithms. I think rate control in a Fontan patient is rarely a good option. I think that rhythm control maintenance of either sinus or an atrial paced rhythm should always be the goal of therapy. Uh, whether that is a combination of drugs and pacing, pacing and ablation, ablation, it, it really has to be the goal in every patient. There may be some patients it's not feasible in, but resorting to something like AV node ablation and pacing is probably going to land your patient on the transplant list uh, before very long. We use sort of the standard approaches we might otherwise apply to our adult patients. And then to understand the complexity of the ablation procedure. As Stephanie knows, probably that well over half of our adult congenital patients who have atrial flutter, it's going to be utilized the cabotricuspid valve isness. So how smart do you have to be to do that necessarily relative to ablating anybody with atrial flutter? But by definition, no patient with a Fontan procedure has a cabotricuspid valve isness because the IVC would otherwise drain venous blood into the systemic circulation. So by definition, it's going to be a non-standard ablation procedure from the get-go. Fantastic. Thanks, Dan and Dr. Fish for that. Uh, now let's switch gears with a different case. We have a 25-year-old man who presented with a five-day history of brief episodes of palpitations. They were not associated with shortness of breath, lightheadedness, or chest pain. He saw his PCP had an EKG done in the office, and it was interpreted as abnormal. So he was sent to the emergency department for further evaluation. 
On arrival, EKG showed a sinus rhythm with a short PR. He had a negative delta wave in B1 with transition at V1 and a negative delta wave in the inferior leads consistent with a type B. A WPW. He was subsequently admitted for observation overnight and he had an echocardiogram, which showed normal ventricular function, but he had an apical displaced tricuspid valve suggestive of Epstein anomaly. TR was mild. And no arrhythmias were noted overnight, so he was discharged home with an event monitor. Dr. Fish, what are your initial thoughts on this case? Well, first of all, I agree with your interpretation of the EKG. It's clear that this patient has a right-sided accessory pathway or possibly multiple pathways, which I think is one of the very first things to bear in mind. Sometimes when one looks at the EKG of a patient with S-Teams anomaly, it's apparent they have WPW, but it may be sometimes difficult to localize a pathway, and that should be the first clue they may have multiple accessory pathways, which is not uncommon in these individuals. The other thing that sort of confounds the electrocardiographic interpretation is that the normal EKG for a patient with S-Teams Epstein's anomaly, who does not have WPW, would most often at this age demonstrate right bundle branch block. So you have a pre-excitation superimposed on an underlying right bundle branch block, which can make things a little bit difficult to interpret. But as we expect a patient with Epstein's anomaly, you're going to expect right-sided pathway or septal pathways over left-sided in the majority of cases. As far as Discharging off therapy versus on therapy, I think it's certainly reasonable not to necessarily place this patient on an antiarrhythmic drug at the beginning, although I would probably, if not ready to take the patient to the EP lab in a short period of time, would probably put them on a class one drug, which is flecainide or propofenone to help mitigate against the potential for rapid atrial conduction during an atrial arrhythmia, which these patients are also prone to. Now, thank you so much, Dr. Fish. I really appreciate the nuances that you're bringing out here with Epstein's anomaly and, you know, and these patients with their surface ECGs and interpreting it may be challenging. And in general, how many of them have right bundle branch blocks, which, you know, without any, you know, Will Parkinson White syndrome or accessory pathways rather. And so that can make it even further challenging to appreciate. So with that in mind, Dan Clark, in patients with Epstein's anomaly, what should prompt us to pursue an EP study plus or minus catheter ablation? That's a great question, Danny. As you may already know, approximately one-third of adults with Epstein anomaly have accessory pathways that are associated with a high risk of sudden cardiac death. And atrial tachyarrhythmias are very common in these patients. In a setting of ventricular pre-excitation, like Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, atrial tachyarrhythmias may expose the patient to a higher risk of lethal ventricular arrhythmias. So as you know, we don't give nodal blockers to Wolf-Parkinson-White patients in atrial fibrillation as this can precipitate one-to-one conduction down the accessory pathway by blocking that AV node. So when we look at their 2018 ACCAHA ACHD guidelines, if everyone doesn't already know those, that are a great reference. I mean, so when we go to those and look, EP study with or without catheter ablation is given a 2A indication for diagnostic evaluation of adults with Epstein anomaly and ventricular pre-excitation like our patient here, even without uh, supraventricular tachycardia. And likewise, when we think about surgical planning and taking the patient, if we do need to for repair, there's a 2A indication to do an EP study plus or minus catheter ablation prior to surgical intervention on the tricuspid valve, regardless of a history of SVT or even a pre-excitation, just because these pathways can be so common. So Dr. Fish, you've helped us some even recently with some of these Epstein patients undergoing EP studies. What do you think? Are there are there other settings that you think we should be considering EP study as well? Yeah, thanks, Dan. I think it's uh, much to a lesser degree, but somewhat similar to the Fontan discussion is that I think you have to individualize patients. 
not all Epstein's are the same. Some have very mild displacement, some have severe displacement. And even some of those who have severe displacement may still have well enough functioning ventricle that it doesn't compromise their output in sinus rhythm, may compromise their output significantly during arrhythmias. And then also, if they have significant tricuspid valve insufficiency, I think the potential that this patient might require tricuspid valve repair or replacement should factor into the decision-making process. That said, as you probably can appreciate that, I tend to be fairly proactive myself about ablation in these patients. And I think the fact that they are prone to so many different arrhythmias is important. The presence of multiple accessory pathways increases the likelihood that they could be susceptible to antidromic tachycardia rather than the more typical orthodromic, meaning the antigrade conduction is down the accessory pathway and a retrograde conduction may be over a second accessory pathway. So the presence or the high possibility of multiple pathways should be factored in. I think sometimes these patients, if they have significant displacement, can harbor areas of fibrosis and slow conduction within the atrialized portion of the right ventricle. So that's the trichotomyocardium, myocardium, which lies between the true AV groove and the displaced tricuspid valve. It's thin-walled like atrial tissue, but it's often unhealthy tissue. So these patients can be prone to ventricular tachycardias. You may see a patient with WPW who also has a trichotomyocardium myocardium fiber. So they can be prone to atrial flutter, less commonly atrial fibrillation, and, and they often have dual node physiology. So they just have a high arrhythmic potential. I can remember the very first patient that I did a hemodynamic catheterization on as a first-year fellow was a young man with Epstein's anomaly. And about five minutes after my attending mentioned that some people think these kids are prone to fibrillate, patient actually fibrillated during the heart cath. So they are high-risk patients and sometimes much higher risk than people might otherwise appreciate. Here you have a 25-year-old man who has gotten to this point in his life without any apparent suspicion of congenital heart disease, let alone an arrhythmia substrate, but he could be a significant risk. So I think it's important to evaluate these patients personally, but especially if they're going to be undergoing any kind of surgical intervention. Having your first patient fibrillate when you're doing a right heart cath sounds, you know, particularly scary. But thank you for bringing up that point that the anatomy of this particular condition is not just susceptible for atrial arrhythmias, but also ventricular arrhythmias. And having said that, in this patient, he wore an event monitor to evaluate for arrhythmias that would correlate with his symptoms. And Dr. Finch, in patients without symptoms, what is the role of routine Holter event monitors during clinic follow-up? And in which ACHD patients would you consider them? Well, I think in the absence of symptoms, um, probably the two situations, a patient that is pre-excited, you may want to do ultra monitoring to screen for loss of pre-excitation, uh, meaning abrupt loss of pre-excitation, which might reassure you that this patient who's asymptomatic does not have a rapidly conducting accessory pathway. I think you sometimes have to take that with a grain of salt because sometimes pre-excitation can sort of melt away gradually rather than disappear abruptly in a single beat. If you see pre-excitation disappear abruptly in a single beat during sinus rhythm, that provides some measure of reassurance. I think patients also that uh, warrant ultra-monitoring would be patients who are Fontan patients. You asked about congenital heart disease in general. Fontan patients often don't do well long-term with junctional rhythm because of the loss of ASB synchrony. So we'll sometimes do ultra-monitoring to get a sense of what proportion of time they're in junctional rhythm rather than sinus rhythm. That could be a at least a soft indication for pacing to try and preserve AV synchrony. It may have important, it's not well-established, but it may have some important implications both in terms of their cardiac output, but also potentially in mitigating against or at least lessening the effect of the Fontan physiology on the development of liver disease. 
tetralogy patients. I think it's reasonable to pull to them periodically to see if they are having runs non-sustained ventricular tachycardia because that has in some series been one risk factor to identify patients who may be more susceptible to inducible sustained monomorphic ventricular tachycardia. And then finally, the transposition patients who are prone to atrial arrhythmias or atrial bradyarrhythmias, I'm talking about transposition, who've had an atrial switch, often have sinus node dysfunction, and that may be important to be aware of. And then I guess probably the last group of patients would be patients with consentally corrected transposition who over time may develop AV conduction abnormalities that uh, would warrant pacing. And so sometimes you'll pick up some of these things, the sinus node dysfunction in the atrial switch patients, the AV conduction abnormalities in the CCTGA patients before they actually came to you with overt symptomatology. Uh, Thanks so much, Dr. Fish, for that. And we can definitely appreciate the value of Holter monitoring for some patients who present even without symptoms, but given their underlying adult congenital heart disease, they may benefit from the closest scrutiny. And we'll include these useful pearls in our show notes for people to review and study up on. Now, Dan Clark, We've done several amazing ACHD recordings together, and I feel like I can finally tell you that I love when you call me Dan A. You're the only person that does, and I really appreciate it. Hashtag not really joking. But in all seriousness, why don't you give us some takeaway points that we can take from this last case of our patient with Epstein's anomaly? Well, Dan A, I mean, Danny, Dan, Daniel, Dan Ambinder. I think that, that it's just incredibly important for everyone out there to understand the very high arrhythmic potential for patients with Epstein's anomaly, similar to our patients with Fontaine circulation. Remember that accessory pathways are very common, especially right-sided pathways, and that we should have a pretty low threshold for considering an EP study plus or minus catheter ablation, especially with a Wolf-Parkinson-White pattern on EKG prior to surgery, or if they have Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. Thanks, Dan Clark. Um, This has been a fantastic discussion so far, and we've covered so much already. But let's go through one last case. Now we have a 47-year-old woman who was born with a child of Fallot, for which she underwent repair, a transannular patch repair at age four, who now has severe PR, RV dilation, and RV systolic dysfunction, and was referred to her clinic for ICD evaluation. She has not had palpitations, pre-syncope, or syncope. And the EKG showed a normal sinus rhythm with ripe on the branch block with a QRS duration of um, 186. Patients with tetralogy follow have unique indications for ICD placement for primary prevention of sudden cardiac death. Uh, Dan, could you go over your approach when deciding who warrants ICD implant? Sure, Stephanie. So in, in general, primary prevention ICD for tetralogy follow is indicated for patients meeting similar standard criteria to non-ACHD patients with an LVF less than or equal to 35% in New York Heart Association class 2 or 3 symptoms. This has really been an area of a lot of active study in the literature for decades now to really understand the the risk of SCD in, in patients with tetralogy of Fallot. And so starting with publications by Paul Carey's group in Montreal, and circulation back in the, in the late 2000s to a publication by Katia Zeppenfeld showing the four different isthmuses for VT reentry to target with ablation. There's really been a wealth of literature that's tried to explore understanding the risk of sudden cardiac death and tetralogy. So I like to, I, I kind of always simply try to go back to, to buckets. So for me, I, I group things into three different buckets. So the pump, so what do we know about the right and the left ventricle in this patient with tetralogy flow? And so 
we know that there's been a translinear patch and RV is dilated and that there's RV systolic dysfunction. So we have, you know, underlying RVH, we have dilatation and systolic dysfunction. So we have a weak right ventricle that may be prone to ventricular arrhythmias. If that right ventricle is so dilated and dysfunctional that septal motion is, is impairing LV filling and function, then that's even more concerning. So we don't want to forget to look at the left ventricle and its status um, because that would confer an even greater risk of sudden cardiac death if the LV is weak as well. Then I look at kind of the electricity. So electrical pattern, easy place to start is the ECG. So we have a QRS duration more than 180 milliseconds, which is the cutoff that we think of as increasing risk in tetralogy of fallot. And then on top of that, I look for a fractionated QRS. And so there's a registered study out of France that just came out in circulation this past year, the DAI T4F registry that really found that the fractionation of the QRS may be the most significant risk factor for sudden cardiac death in tetralogy patients. So we pay close attention to the ECG. And then the kind of third bucket that I look at is the surgical approach and kind of sequela of the surgery for the patient. So in this case, we had a transannular patch. So we know that that area is probably akinetic and that there may be scar line along the patch. And other patients, we may have had a ventriculotomy approach or even an LV vent in the older surgical era. So age may increase risk for some of our patients just related to surgical approach, but there may be focal aneurysms or areas of dyskinesis and and that RV outflow tract that that may predispose the patient even more to arrhythmia. And then I look at the pulmonary valve and the status of it. So if if we're thinking that we're going to be moving more towards a pulmonary valve, that may up the stakes for, for really understanding the arrhythmic substrate prior to, to putting a valve in there that could block those those pathways that we want to consider ablating. So that's kind of how I start. Dr. Fish, would you like to add to that? No, I think that's, I would like to add to it, but that was a good summary, Dan, of some important factors. I think the role of conduction delay, the role of SCAR, I think the role of anatomic isthmuses, which Dr. Zeppenfeld initially described back when she was working uh, with Dr. Stevenson has continued to expand on that. And she's actually expanded that not just to identifying the conduction isthmus to support APT, but actually demonstrating conduction velocity as a predictor of patients who uh, may be prone to VT. So I think in the patient described here, uh, uh, number one, you, you have already mentioned, uh, not just looking at the right ventricle, but also looking at the left ventricle. Of all of the, I don't think we have a good uniform sense of what the key risk factors are in this population, unfortunately, because different studies are all small enough that when you do a multivariate analysis, different things seem to fall out. Paul Carey had this wonderful scoring system, which in his, the cohort within which it was developed looked great in terms of identifying patients who could be deemed at low risk, intermediate risk, or higher risk for ventricular arrhythmias. But when that same scoring system was applied to a different cohort in, I'm like on the favorite house, either uh, Belgium or Netherlands, I believe it was Netherlands, it, it, it did, it predicted very poorly. Left ventricular dysfunction, interestingly, is one of the features that seems to hold true in just about every single center or, or multi-center series looking at the, the VT risk in these patients. I, and I agree with not just looking at the patient as a patient need an ICD or the risk for arrhythmias, but also looking at, well, what might we do to uh, modify that risk short of place in the ICD? 
and assessing the patient as to whether they're a candidate for coronary valve replacement, either surgical or non-surgical. If a non-surgical valve replacement is being contemplated, I think it's extremely important to assess their VT substrate pre-intervention because placement of the stent may block your access either directly or indirectly due to fibrosis, reactive fibrosis around the stent itself on the endocardial surface, which may uh, make it challenging to do good transmural lesions. So I think assessing those patients before valve replacement in the cath lab is important. And if it's anticipated that um, the patient may need a a surgical valve, which uh, might be more likely after a transannular patch, although the Harmony valve may be starting to change our, our approach even in those patients. The patient's going to have surgical valve replacement and it creates opportunities to understand the patient's EP conduction abnormalities so that intraoperative cryoablation can be uh, applied. And that's been shown to uh, improve, but not altogether uh, absolve the risk of, of VT. Even when very thoughtfully anatomically derived cryoablation is performed in the, what I Call the posterior pedibular isthmus, which Zepafil calls uh, that was her isthmus number three. And then the uh, cryoablation there may or may not be through and through. And it's important that patients who had inducible VT before undergoing valve replacement be reassessed postoperatively to see if that risk has been eliminated. I think of patients in whom we induce very rapid monomorphic VT that is not supporting blood pressure, then I think that ICD. Whether or not you decide uh, to replace a pulmonary valve and attempt ablation, either cryo or RF ablation in the cath lab or, or in the OR, I think rapid BT is, is a, a special concern for primary prevention. But I think that there's a trend away from primary prevention just based on risk factors, but use those risk factors to, to take the patient to the EP lab, but also think about their, their hemodynamics at the same time. Great conversation on selecting patients for EP ablation. Now let's move on to cardiac resynchronization therapy, which, of course, in the non-ACHD population has proven benefit in patients with symptomatic heart failure from reduced, with reduced ejection fraction and a left bundle branch block or a wide right bundle branch block. But what is the value of CRT in the congenital heart disease population? Let's say... A challenging question. It's an easy question. It's a challenging answer. I think, first of all, again, there's no one size fits all. I think historically, there's been a fairly general acceptance that CRT in congenital heart patients who have a systemic left ventricle has merit. I think the bigger challenge has been demonstrating that efficacy in patients who have systemic right ventricles, either the transposition patients who may have had an atrial switch during childhood or patients with congenitally corrected transposition. Part of that is related to the ability to resynchronize in the systemic left, left ventricle is much more straightforward than patients with a systemic right ventricle. Patients with an atrial switch, it's almost impossible to synchronize them with biventricular pacing using a transvenous approach. So if one is going to do biventricular pacing in that population, it would require at least one epicardial lead on the, on the, on the right ventricular epicardium, which could be combined with the transvenous left ventricular lead. And the, the congenitally corrected transposition patients, it can sometimes be very straightforward to perform resynchronization in those individuals, but uh, they often have very complex coronary sinus anatomy. And I would reference folks to 
a paper published by Jeremy Moore again uh, a few years ago describing their experience in patients with congenitally corrected transposition. And they demonstrated angiographically four different patterns of coronary sinus anatomy, which came into play in those individuals that they attempted transvenous uh, CRT. I inherited one of his patients who was in her late 60s when uh, they performed CRT. They were unable to get a coronary sinus lead. She had an epicardial lead placed on the left-sided RV epicardium and actually responded very well. Her indication was she was an operated patient with AV conduction, but had heart failure symptoms and responded well. She then moved to Middle Tennessee and soon after uh, arriving here, started to experience phrenic pacing from that epicardial lead. So went to an outside hospital where they simply, she had intact conduction. So they simply turned off the, the LV lead, which in her case was her right country. And within six months, uh, she was back in heart failure. And fortunately, we were able to get a transvenous, or excuse me, yeah, transvenous uh, lead intercoronary sinus system. And she, her heart failure symptoms responded very well. So there certainly are individuals who have a systemic right ventricle will respond to CRT. Perhaps one of the more exciting things now is our ability in many instances to target the patient's intrinsic conduction system as a, an alternative to more classic biventricular pacing. In non-congenital heart disease patients, his bundle pacing or more recently, uh, left bundle branch block pacing show comparable uh, efficacy at achieving resynchronization of the left ventricle and both appear superior, at least in one study, to a conventional biventricular pacing. And we've been able to place hispondal leads in patients with both congenital corrector transposition as well as a complete transposition with atrial switch uh, with good results. But that can also sometimes be technically challenging if the patient doesn't have the, an adequate juxtal escape rate that becomes difficult to identify the his bundle to target it. And sometimes simply the orientation of the his bundle with respect to your venous uh, approach confounds ability to pace there. Likewise, while it's relatively straightforward to pace the left bundle in most individuals who have a systemic left ventricle in the transposition patient, the systemic ventricle is the right ventricle, and that's probably the one that's more important to synchronize, so that can be challenging. In the univitricular patients, I think most people that care for a lot of Fontan patients would agree that ventricular pacing is often poorly tolerated in Fontan patients. And while there is not uh, great data to support it, whenever we have patients who require ventricular pacing who have a Fontan physiology, we try our best to achieve multi-site pacing on the uh, left, left-sided surface and the right-sided surface. How well that preserves from their ventricular function is difficult and it's challenging just because of numbers to, to, to show statistical proof that that approach uh, has merit. So I think the congenital population is uh, still a work in progress. And again, the anatomic heterogeneity, even within certain lesions, it really makes it difficult sometimes to draw concise conclusions. So I think every patient has to be approached individually. Okay, Dr. Fish. So we've established that device therapy may be useful for patients with adult congenital heart disease of various flavors and not to downplay the procedural finesse needed for implantation of devices with patients without adult congenital heart disease, but I would imagine that there are so many technical considerations, even even more than you had mentioned, that have to be considered when implanting devices in this patient population. Can you speak to this, Dr. Fish? What flows through your mind when approaching these patients? Well, I think first and foremost is patients who've had repairs for congenital heart disease, often that has included a septal defect of some kind. So I think 
probably one of the very first things that one always has to ask aggressively is whether there are any remaining intracardiac shunting, particularly at the atrial level. Patients who've had a mustard operation or a sending operation often have atrial baffle leaks. Patients who've had a fontan may have had an intentional surgical fenestration left, which can improve cardiac output in the early postoperative period. Is that fenestration still open or not? Often they can also have baffle leaks. Those baffle leaks can often be closed with using interventional devices uh, in the cath lab. And we will sometimes, we almost always will perform a transesophageal echo before we consider transvenous implantation in our adult congenital patients. And if we identify atrial level shunting, then often we'll take them to uh, the cath lineup and have our interventional colleagues address the uh, intracardiac shunt first, whether it be with a uh, some type of septal occlusion device or in the case of a baffle, occasionally a covered stent suffices to uh, close that area off from residual shunting and then place the transvenous leads often at the same procedure. And then as far as CRT, I think you just have to really understand the, the anatomy and what approaches will be available to you as to whether you consider attempting CRT. Even if you recognize that transvenous CRT may be a challenge, going to the OR and planning the placement of an epicardial lead is not always straightforward. We recently had a patient who had a double switch done at other, another highly regarded institution as an infant and family is very committed to that center. And uh, he required aortic valve replacement and uh, was chronically paced. Had uh, because of his double switch, transvenous CRT wasn't going to be feasible. So, have a lot done and included an epicardial uh, lead. But the only place they were really able to find to place that epicardial lead to attempt CRT was in a sub aortic position of the right ventricle. And it really didn't, uh, excuse me, position of this right-sided left ventricle. And it really didn't provide much resynchronization. So even the best late plans can sometimes be challenging. These patients who've had prior stromotomies and have a lot of, a uh, lot of scar, uh, surrounding the heart that one has to dig to to get leads in place. Dr. Fish, thank you for going over that. You know, we've talked about so many things. We uh, send patients for routinely. And I guess from the electrophysiological side, get patients for routinely. When it comes to ablation, device therapy, you know, monitoring uh, rhythms, you know, these can be challenging considerations in general, but there's so many nuances to consider in a paucity of data and variability in practice for the ACHD population. Dan Clark, what are your takeaways for the, the, the average card unit out there? Well, I mean, I think that they, just going back to really a good understanding at the patient level of their underlying anatomy the surgical history, not forgetting the surface ECG and, and what we can learn from it, and then imaging studies that give us good assessments of, of the valve and ventricular status that are, you know, really the, the bread and butter of, of all cardiac patients is, is still the bread and butter for ACHD patients of, of really understanding at a detailed level what the, the particular risks and, and potential consequences of, of arrhythmias are. And, and I think that, you know, for this third patient that we presented with Tetralogy of Fallot, I think that it is important to remember that there are some unique risk factors in Tetralogy that we alluded to that can increase risk of sudden cardiac death. But again, that if, if you're reviewing at a patient level, the specifics of, of their anatomy and physiology and prior repair, then that will really clue you in to, to some of those risks instead of memorizing, you know, retrospective papers uh, table of risk factors. 
this has been a wonderful discussion. I think we could keep talking about this very complex topic. But Dr. Fish, uh, now our last and some may consider our most important question. What makes your heart flutter about EP and ACHD? I think in some ways the arrhythmias in the adult congenital population represent sort of the nexus of complex anatomy and potentially complex arrhythmia substrates and understanding and appreciating those nuances is important and understanding the intersection between anatomic concerns, which may impact your management rather than just approaching, well, this is another case of flutter. This is another case of BT, I think is very important. And likewise, realize that you have to anticipate the unanticipatable and that being ready and prepared to address a, a complication or an obstacle to perform the, the ablation approach that you had planned while the patient's on the table. Obviously, do everything you can in, ter- in terms of imaging and understanding the patient's anatomy to know what your obstacles and challenges are likely to be, and then realizing here's another issue that we didn't anticipate that we have to overcome, allowing time to be able to address those issues. It's not the kind of patient you want to put on, the, on your case schedule as your second of, of four cases for the day. And I don't know, I just, I like, I like the complexity. I enjoy the complexity. I, I enjoy the, you know, it's, it's not just a, an intellectual uh, challenge, but it's a procedural challenge. You know, it takes uh, certain hand-eye skills and three-dimensional thinking as well as applying everything we learn about arrhythmia physiology in the lab. So it's, and it's, it's always stimulating. And every, every year I encounter something that I'd never seen before, which keeps it, keeps it fresh. Thank you, Dr. Fish. And thanks, thanks everyone for joining. Guys, I'll just have to, to add that, that Dr. Fish definitely, definitely loves it. We were, we were in an extraction just a couple Fridays ago. And I think persistence is a, is a key attribute that, that serves him well. And those fun toys he was talking about, I'm sure. <laughs> For the audience, like you have to see Dr. Fish has many passions. In our recording studio, that he, our virtual recording studio, we get a glimpse into his life and you can just see like multitudes of guitars ready to be played. And it's just so nice to see how um, broad how broad you are, Dr. Fish. It's really inspiring to uh, nerds like us who may sometimes get too focused. An interesting tidbit is uh, Bill Stevenson, who Stephanie will obviously recognize that name, but joined us uh, a few years ago. And uh, Bill's an avid guitarist. We've had a chance to play some jazz together a couple of times, and he's quite good. So I'm not alone in, in sharing those two passions. We may need to have you two together just to rock out as we do some teaching. <laughs> All right. Find us a drummer and it's, it's a deal. thanks for tuning in to another cardio nerds episode the audio editing for this episode was performed by me shivani reddy i'm an intern in the cardio nerds academy house eindhoven and a fourth year medical student at western michigan university school of medicine i invite you to check out the episode page for show notes and references If you found this episode informative, please consider subscribing to CardioNerds on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. It helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. 
All CardioNerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our upcoming episodes. And now, it's time to make like an S2 and split. Thank <laughs> you.